Our scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 8, verses 9 through 22. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. You might have noticed my little nursery blocks here this morning. Uh, have you ever noticed how strange nursery rhymes can be? Anybody? Uh, we have this set of wooden blocks that have all these nursery rhyme sayings on them about Jack and Jill and uh, they have illustrations on, on them as well. Some nursery rhymes can be strangely dark. You really reflect on them. You think about Mary had a little lamb. Who, her fleece was white as snow. Everywhere that Mary went, uh, the lamb was sure to go. That's cute, right? That's a good one. But then we have another familiar one. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown. Jill came tumbling after Let's see what the moral is to that one. Maybe the, or the happy ending, you just be careful when you're going up a hill. Even worse, it's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. Who doesn't love a nap on a rainy day, right? He went to bed and bumped his head and didn't get up in the morning? That's dark. Is he okay? The worst one, uh, I couldn't actually find the block for it. We must have thrown it away or something. Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. Your house is on fire and your children are gone. All except one, and that's little Anne, for she crept under the frying pan. What does that mean? <laughs> There's something strangely sinister under the surface of many of these, and for good reason, actually. Many of the nursery rhymes that we tell have their origins in things like plagues or medieval politics or religious persecution and worse. In their beginnings, they were actually kind of a method of subtle protest and education where free speech was limited. You can make a silly rhyme and teach it to your kids while the adults knew what was really going on behind it, right? Over time, the childish rhyme survives, but the meaning gets 
forgotten somewhere along the way. Uh, This morning, we continue on in our study of major figures throughout the book of Genesis, and we encounter Noah, whose life and events often get portrayed in nurseries, right? Yet the details of his life are pretty terrifying. Worldwide flood. Most of us hear Noah and think, you know, cute animals and rainbows, which are a crucial part of the story. But we conveniently leave out God's judgment poured out on a wicked world through a global flood that kills everybody except Noah and his family. You know, the cheery bit. So, Noah. We don't know a lot about Noah's life uh, prior to the flood. Uh, We know that he was a man of faith and integrity, seemingly the only one on earth at the time. We know that he was good at following directions. It says several times in the narrative that he did everything just as the Lord commanded. We also know that he's a farmer, particularly that he's a vine dresser. uh, That at least once in his life, right after the flood, and after that he kind of partakes of too much wine. We haven't read that part of the story, but you can read that later. It was a traumatic experience, though, right? He just went through a lot. So maybe we can give him a little grace in that. But there's also a lot that we think we know about Noah's life and often tell these kind of parts of the story that aren't really in the text. First of all, you often hear folks talk about how everyone mocked Noah for his faith in building the ark, but it actually never says that in the text. In fact, when Jesus talks about Noah, he indicates that folks were mostly unaware and paid him no mind at all. That's in Matthew chapter 24, 37 through 39. We also have little idea of what the ark actually looked like. For all the dimensions given, we don't know if it was a traditional boat shape. We might assume that. Uh, More like a big box that just floated on the water. There's uh, debates about that among scholars, what exactly it kind of looked like. We don't even know for sure that Noah and his family were the only ones to work on the boat. Did he hire others uh, to help him? Uh, Some cinematic depictions of it actually have animals helping as well, giraffes helping to uh, lift these large beams or things like that, right? Why not? We honestly don't know. The biblical text is unconcerned with some of these details because there are bigger truths being communicated. And those are the truths that I want us to reflect on this morning, having to do with the judgment of God, the faithfulness of Noah, and our hope beyond judgment. Start with judgment. Why not, right? There's no doubt that God's decision to send the flood waters and start fresh is an exercise of his judgment on humanity, the state of creation by Noah's time. There is some uh, debate about, about whether this should be labeled an instance of God's wrath. In Genesis uh, 6, 5 through 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. The wrath in English is defined as intense anger and antagonism, Uh, and some people have noted that it doesn't actually say he was angry here in the text, rather that he was grieved or troubled. I would point out, once again, that anger is a secondary emotion and often can accompany grief. And so it's not necessarily, uh, you want me splitting hairs here a bit, but the distinction may be helpful because it illuminates God's motivations here. That God is not acting out of vindictiveness 
or a capricious anger, but rather he's deeply moved by the state of pain and suffering and brokenness that his creation has been subjected to. So God isn't wrathful. He isn't uh, issuing judgment in spite of his love and mercy. He is moved to judgment on account of his mercy. God's wrath is an extension of God's love here. One of my favorite Christian thinkers is a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. He describes it this way. He, he, used, he said he used to reject the concept of God's wrath. He thought that the idea of an angry God was barbaric, completely unworthy of a God of love. But then his country experienced a brutal war. People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors and their country. And one of his books called uh, Free of Charge, Volf writes this. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a causality, a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. In other words, if God did not love us, he could have either turned his back and left us, to our own devices or else wiped us out cleanly without a thought when he, he looked and he, he saw the state that the world had become. But because of his love and mercy and seeing uh, his care for an opportunity for there to still be a continuation of humanity, entered into the muck. God sees us. God cares about us enough that God grieves over our mistakes and takes the time to do something about it. I heard recently uh, someone say that parenting is only hard for good parents. If you're a parent and you don't care about your kid, if you're a bad parent, then when it gets difficult, you will do whatever you need to to keep it easy for yourself. You might leave, you might become abusive, you might do any number of things to keep it easy for you. But if you're a good parent, you are involved in such ways that make it difficult for you. Get involved in messy situations. God gets involved in our problems because he cares. God's love expresses itself both in perfect justice and perfect mercy. God's perfect justice saw the depth of corrupt, corruption and violence, and he knew he could not let that continue and yet, God's perfect mercy searched for any faithful person, any tender shoot from which he might start uh, his new garden with. He found Noah, the faithful one. The uh, description of Noah as righteous and blameless, it doesn't indicate that he was necessarily perfect by any means. Uh, we know that all have sinned and fallen short. We know that Noah will later have his own mistakes. Instead, though, we're to understand that Noah had a good reputation among all everyone. Whether they liked him or not, folks knew that Noah was a man of integrity. And most of all, Noah 
found favor in God's eyes because he sought to live earnestly and faithfully according to God's way, repenting whenever he'd gone astray and endeavoring to do whatever the Lord commanded. Because of Noah's faithfulness, he's able to ride out the storm. But we must remember, he went through the storm, through the flood, right? God doesn't promise any of us that a faithful life will be rewarded in any significant way in this life. In fact, it may mean both rejection by the world and endurance through the same judgment that the rest of the world is going through. However, those who endure will inherit promise. During a vacation I took years ago uh, to Lake Erie, Lydia and I had an opportunity to take in some sites and visit uh, some of the lighthouses on the peninsula. And there, and there was one in particular that we went to. And on one of the tours, I was in, intrigued to hear that Charles Waldo, who was the first keeper of the Presque Isle Lighthouse, he spoke of his seven-year tenure as being the loneliest place on earth. Until a road to the mainland was built in 1927, the keepers and their families were quite lonely. Their isolation was only broken up by the arrival of uh, supply uh, uh, several times each year. And one time while Walter was living in the lighthouse, his family, he, he wrote about this event on July 12, 1873, where he said, there's a new station and a light will be exhibited for the first time tonight. And later on, he said, there was one visitor who came. Early U.S. lighthouse service keepers, like Waldo, they were required to keep the light burning from sunset until sunrise during the shipping season, April through November. They were the ones helping to guide ships to shore to make sure that in the fog and all of uh, the danger of shipping that people could find their way to the shore. And it was very lonely work. They liked to say that they were slaves to the light. Having to climb the tower at least four every four hours each night to check the oil supply, to clean the lens, to reset the ro rotating mechanism. There's something kind of haunting and inspiring learning about these individuals and these families who gave up normal life so that they could go to these very lonely places and help guide people safely to the harbor. I think Noah might have felt a similar sort of ache of loneliness in his work both before and after the flood. He was a slave to the light, so to speak. Not literally, but to the light of God's word, attentively obeying God's instruction, which alone provided the way to salvation. And like Noah, we are also called to faithful endurance. Jesus tells us time and time again throughout the Gospels to count the cost that following Jesus doesn't guarantee an easy life, but it does guarantee real restored life. You know that the, the flood itself is called to mind through our act of baptism, right? When we embrace the waters of baptism, it's a sign that we're being buried with Christ into the waters, risen into life through the power of his spirit, as if we're being buried into the flood, but saved through the ark of Christ's righteousness and mercy. We submit ourselves to faithfully endure through the flood waters as a testimony to our hope in God's covenant love. We become slaves to light because we know the light that the light brings. The flood narrative, it ends later in chapter 9 with a sign and a promise. 
a rainbow, symbolizing God's commitment to never bring this kind of devastating global flood on the earth again. It's one of my favorite parts of the flood account, and it's the part that's easily missed, where God says in uh, chapter 9, verse 13, I have set my bow in the clouds. Some have made the observation that at that point in history, the bow and arrow was the, the most advanced form of, uh, of weapons technology that they had. It's as if God was, was saying, I am laying down my weapons of war. Even more powerful, it's pointed up, upwards to the heavens. As if to say, if I break this covenant, it's on me. I'll take the hit. From the fall to the flood, God has continually said, I will not lose my creation to sin. And so there are consequences for corruption, for violence and broken relationship. But he also never fails to find a way for renewal, for redemption, being willing to take the hit and the hurt himself that's necessary. God never gives up. Reflecting on the flood this week, uh, I was actually also drawn to a very different passage in the Gospels where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to the cross. And he says, Father, if there is any way, take this cup from me. If not, may your will be done. I thought of that and reflected, and I just realized how many other ways God had tried course of human history to deal with our problem, our sin. Now, through the cross, God himself went to the utter depths to liberate us from our bondage to sin, to rescue, to redeem. Jesus sank beneath the waters of death on our account, was resurrected and glorified, canceling the power of sin in our lives. And God has promised not to destroy by flood again, but we do know that there is yet another judgment coming, the likes of which was only prefigured by the flood. The prophets and the New Testament tell us that the last judgment will be coming like fire. In 2 Peter 3, 5-7, it says that scoffers, they forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. We can read words like that and think that's bad news. Remember, it's good news. We can know that the reality of injustice and violence in this world will not last forever. Sin and evil will finally be dealt with. It will not last forever. God will put an end to evil in just judgment. And because of Christ, we do not have to fear that day. God has made a way. There is salvation from this corrupt world. And it comes only in restored relationship with God, the person, Jesus. Every hostility, wound, and humiliation that we could throw at him, Jesus took it. Every excuse that we have found for our sinful sinful behavior, Jesus received it. Jesus, God in human form, lived through all of our same trials and temptations without sinning. He was wounded, rejected, condemned to death unjustly. Yet he responded to all of that faithfully with the word forgiveness. We can endure judgment because of his pardon. Wow. In 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14, it says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward 
new heaven, new earth, where righteousness dwells. So then we must make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. How will we respond to Jesus today, to his word calling us into faithfulness? In order to answer that question, we need to come to terms with the condition of our own hearts. Because when we come before the Lord in his awesome and mighty presence, we are brought to conviction. When we come face to face with the radiant purity of his holiness and glory, all of our faults reveal how utterly unworthy we are to be at his side in his presence. And if we hide our sin from God because we are afraid of judgment, we'll find that the light of God can feel like a terrible calamity. But if we offer our whole selves to God, in humility and in love, we'll find that God's light is a healing balm that brings us comfort and safety, a shelter in the storm. Choice is ours. Lord, as we think of our world, it is easy for us to, to see the news and see the situations of the world around us uh, whether it is through headlines or even through uh, the situations of our own families or our neighbors, where we can see uh, trials after trials, evidence that we are not yet in what we hope for of your restored kingdom. And we see the impacts of sin and evil in our world, of human greed and selfishness and violence. And we say, oh Lord, how long? How long? You come and put an end. Yet also, Lord, we know of the condition of our own hearts and the ways that we contribute, both in our activity and in our inactivity, both in our overt corruption and faithlessness and, and rebellion, or in our subtle ways in which we just choose to forget, to be blind, being your hands and feet in the world. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, awaken our hearts and our spirits the truth that you have shown us over and over again, that we might be called anew to faithfulness, to pursue you with our whole hearts and our whole lives. We give ourselves.